0: Tēnā no My Hide haida, my welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, two step forward and one step back in the ongoing battle against COVID-19. Should the bubble reopen before our population is vaccinated? Then, wildfires, floods and record temperatures. We've had two months of particularly damaging weather events. But how much can be pinned on climate change? And can New Zealand walk the line and side with both China And the United States?
1: I just think it's inevitable that as the new form of a bipolar world emerges, in many respects, especially on security, countries will be forced to choose. We'll have that interview shortly. But first, Delta has struck a
0: blow to New Zealand's COVID-19 response, with the Trans-Tasman bubble closed as infection numbers continue to grow in Australia. Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson is with us this morning, Tiernak. We're welcome to you. Jack. Can we just start with New Plymouth? Do you have any updates for us overnight?
2: Uh, so overnight, we haven't seen any positive tests, so that's a very, you know, a good, a good piece of news uh, coming out of New Plymouth. But what we do need is people in New Plymouth to get tested in that area um, if you've got any kind of symptoms whatsoever. But also, particularly if you've been in Australia, um, we know that a number of people who've come back from from a trips over to uh, our friends over the ditch have come back to the town. Taranaki region. If they've done that, we'd like them to get tested as well, just to make sure that we can completely cover off anybody who might have been exposed over
0: there. So there is still concern that this positive result in Taranaki might have resulted from someone coming back from Australia as part of the trans-Tasman bubble
2: with COVID-19. So wastewater testing is very sensitive and it can pick up um, when people have had the virus previously and it's what's called shedding uh, where, they, where they've where they got remnants of the virus in their system but they're no longer sick or infectious or anything like that. That's still regarded as the most likely uh, scenario at play here uh, but we still want to cover off all our bases and obviously we know that one of the things that has been happening is we've had this regular flow of people so it's not saying that we think that is the case mm. but merely that on a belt and braces approach we should make sure that anyone who's been in Australia during that period of time does get a test. Okay let's talk about the trans-Tasman bubble. Has the Delta variant fundamentally changed our approach to COVID-19? I think it's fundamentally changed the world's approach to COVID-19. I think I read recently that in the last fortnight across the world, we've seen a 30% increase in the number of infections. Delta and the variants that are happening as a result of the mutation of COVID-19 is making sure that everybody sits up and takes notice of something that is more transmissible. Certainly when it came to the Trans-Tasman travel bubble uh, when we looked at the situation and said well how do we manage where we've got New South Wales with this outbreak the reality is we then had to take a step back and say well the whole of Australia is now potentially at risk of the Delta variant spreading it is so much more transmissible we therefore had to act. You've laid down that eight week uh, time frame for
0: the time being but what do you
2: need to see in order to reopen? Certainly we need to see that community transmission was contained in Australia, that we weren't seeing cases that we wouldn't expect, you know, people who were already in isolation, family members within a bubble. Um, We'd got to get past this point of people in the community Uh, getting COVID and at the moment, unfortunately, in New South Wales, I think yesterday, 163 cases, Mm. 45 of them were people who had had been in the community while they were infectious. So that's why we've gone for the eight weeks because we need to push it out to a point at which we think we could reasonably see that situation, but we will be monitoring it and we won't be reopening it unless we are comfortable that that community transmission is contained.
0: What does that mean, community transmission contained? Does that mean zero cases? It doesn't mean zero
2: cases. And I think people will remember this from when we we had COVID. It doesn't mean zero cases per se, but it means that you can reliably predict where the cases will be inside a household where somebody has one when that person is already isolating. Mm. But if we know that those people have been in the community, what we know about the Delta variant is that it spreads quickly and we have to be very, very cautious in response to that.
0: Will you partially reopen to some states or will you
2: wait until all states have contained... We'll take a look at that at the time, but at the moment we are looking at it as an Australia-wide situation. And right. that is different from what we were trying to do with yeah. the bubble, as you know. With the bubble, we, um, before Delta became prevalent in Australia, we thought that state by state there were some good procedures in place to manage this. The reality, particularly on the mainland of Australia, is that, unfortunately, those are big borders, it's very hard, and because it's so transmissible, we've seen with Victoria... Queensland, South Australia, even Western Australia and Northern Territory briefly, once it gets in there, it is difficult to contain. And so in the end, the precautionary approach says we need to look at this Australia-wide. But I mean, there, there is still a lot of resistance, as we've seen
0: overnight, to, to really hard lockdowns mm. in places like New South Wales. Is it realistic, from the case numbers we're seeing at the moment, for
2: a state like New South Wales to actually have this contained within eight weeks? Well, that's what we have to look at, and we're not saying we, you know, we eight weeks and then we, we no. go back to normal. We will be assessing it, and it's going to be a hard road for for New South Wales. But with a, a full lockdown, they should start eventually to see those uh, those um, transmissions come down. However we need to be confident that it is contained and under control and obviously eight weeks gives us a window where we feel we can at least have another look at it.
0: Uh, I just want to be really clear though, if cases are still bad in New South Wales but they are completely under control in Victoria, South Australia and Queensland, you will not be opening the bubble.
2: We'll take a look at that but at the moment we're looking at it as an Australia-wide situation because Delta is such a transmissible variant.
0: From the advice of your officials, given where vaccinations are at at the moment and given where vaccinations are projected to be come the last couple of weeks of September, is there any point in reopening the bubble before all adult New Zealanders have had the opportunity to be vaccinated?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, we we still think we can operate a trans-Tasman travel bubble, but it does require us to have Delta under control and that will be a difficult task. Vaccination is definitely part of being able to manage that, but that's obviously vaccination here and vaccination mm-hmm. in Australia. So it's not just a one-way street, even if you had vaccinated um, all of the, the adult population of New Zealand. So we will take a look at that, but we do believe it is possible to manage it uh, within a situation where we're still vaccinating some New Zealanders.
0: But there, is there any point? I mean, if it's for the sake of... No, but I mean, for the sake of eight weeks, say, if that gives us an additional level of protection. And I appreciate that that the Delta variant is insidious and that uh, being vaccinated is no 100% guarantee against infection. I mean, for the sake of eight weeks, if everyone is to be vaccinated by
2: the end of November or by Christmas this year... Why not wait until then? Yeah, again, we'll we'll listen to the advice on that. That's not the advice that we're getting. Um, The advice we continue to get from our officials is this is manageable so long as community transmission is contained uh, in Australia or, indeed, in New Zealand if we were to get it. Uh, But obviously, we'll take a look at that. And I think you've seen, Jack, from the way the government's handled this throughout uh, the last 18 months or so, we've taken the precautionary approach. as we've done now with extending this to the whole of Australia. And we will continue with that precautionary approach because the worst thing for New Zealand would be ourselves having to go into a lockdown-type situation and all the impacts that that brings. In sticking with
0: introspection,
2: (laughs) uh, is there any part of the New Zealand vaccine rollout so far that you think could have been smoother? Oh, look, on a day-to-day basis, when you're doing a mass vaccination programme of the whole population, of course there are going to be things that um, could be better. But overall, I think it's a... a program that's running well, and the feedback we get from virtually every person who goes and gets vaccinated is that it is a good process. They feel well looked after, they feel well communicated with. Um, We've got supplies of vaccines ordered now that mean we will be able to do, as you've said, and vaccinate everybody who wants to be Mm. by the end of the year. Um, At the beginning of this process, we needed to get approval for the vaccine. We need to go through all of the right processes. We're not going to have people having levels of confidence in the vaccine if we'd rushed through and ignored Medsafe and just gone ahead. So we had to go through those steps, and I think we did that appropriately. We've got a single dose, a single vaccine, which I think Mm. is really important for public confidence as well. So, yep, look, we'll take a a look back in times to come. um, And You said said there are some things you think could have been done better. Oh, just the way in which, you know, on a day-to-day basis within a particular DHB, how they might have communicated with a particular group. That's what I mean. The overall programme, though, I've got a lot of confidence in, and actually the hard work that's going on right now by thousands of vaccinators is paying off and every person I've spoken to who's gone and had their vaccine has had a great experience we've now got the, um, the people the who o- haven't had them yeah. and the 0800 numbers are available for all of those group 3 people to ring up and the feedback again there is people are getting their appointments and look you know Jack we always said our goal was by the end of the year to have all New Zealanders who wanted to be vaccinated. Vaccinated, and I'm confident we'll reach that.
0: I think uh, the l- latest numbers earlier this week on Wednesday showed that about 20% of Group 3 have had their first jab. But, of course, um, things start opening up for Group 4 this week. As someone who... Um, is used to analysing
2: processes. <laughs> is, does that, does that, from a bureaucratic sense, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it, I think it's fine because we don't stop. You know, Group 1 hasn't stopped. Group 2 hasn't stopped. We keep going, but this is the opportunity. We've got the yeah, We want to be prioritising those groups first. Right? Yeah, but it would be a bit silly, wouldn't it, to have lots of vaccine in stock but not be vaccinating someone in Group 4 because we were searching for every member of Group 3. We roll it out continually, and I think you'll see those percentages of Group 3 ramp up yeah significantly now that we've got that booking system in place for them.
0: I know that Helen Clark doesn't believe global travel will return to pre-pandemic norms within the space of her lifetime. From the information that we have available and what we know about the Delta variants and the information you're getting in the
2: PMO at the moment, is that accurate? I certainly think things will change. Uh, If you think about 9-11, things didn't go back to normal in terms of international travel after after 9-11. Our whole experience of Mm. airports and planes and everything can changed. And I think the same will apply when it comes to COVID. I think it'll take a a significant amount of time um, for it to feel like it did before COVID. And I doubt that it ever fully will. A couple of quick questions on Samoa. Samoa's Court of Appeal
0: has made a ruling that means Fiame Naomi Mata'afa is Prime Minister. Do you think the
2: dispute has damaged Samoa's democracy? Oh, look, you know, all countries from time to time go through situations where their de- democratic processes are tested, where the courts are uh, have to become involved from time to time. I think the courts have made their decision now, and we're very pleased to welcome Fiome as the Prime Minister. Uh, she's someone I've met and, and I know, and I think she's going to be a terrific leader for Samoa. Have you been
0: concerned about that situation?
2: No, we were very happy and confident in Samoa's systems that they would work it out, and, you know, the court has spoken. That's the appropriate time now for us to say we have a Prime Minister in Samoa. New Zealand's relationship with Samoa is hugely important to us and we're looking forward to working with her. And should the outgoing PM2 Labour concede? Look, you know, that's entirely up to him. The decision's been made by the court now. New Zealand is very confident that we have a new Prime Minister in Samoa to work with. We've worked well with Tuileapa over the years, you know, and he's you know, his contribution to the Pacific needs to be recognised. Uh, but there's been an election, there is a result, there is a new Prime Minister, and we're looking forward to working with her. Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson Te Thank you Tā for oda. your time.
0: After the break on Q&A, two months of climate-fuelled natural disasters, but what can be directly attributed to climate change? Plus, how does your CV compare to this guy's? I've been a farmer, I've been a labourer, I've been a driver, I've been a barman, a bouncer, a hustler, I've been
3: an artist, a tutor, a publisher, a gardener. I was a soldier for eight weeks. That didn't work out.
0: Ho ki we welcome back to Q&A. A A week since floods put much of Buller underwater, there is a severe weather warning in place once again for northern and upper western parts of the South Island. But the last two months has seen a series of extreme weather events causing death and destruction around the world. China is the latest country to be saturated by record rainfall. In Jingzhou on Wednesday, at least 25 people died... 12 of those in an underground train after the tunnel was flooded. Several dams were destroyed and hundreds of thousands of people evacuated in what scientists describe as a once-in-millennium weather event. Contrast that with Siberia, where a heatwave has led to unprecedented wildfires this week. The air pollution in nearby towns and cities is so bad, residents were told not to step outside. The heat's causing issues in Scandinavia as well. In the Norwegian county of Saltdal, right near the Arctic Circle, a new record temperature of 34 degrees was recorded this month. Last week, the UN confirmed Antarctica has also set a new record temperature. The frozen continent hit 18 degrees Celsius. The clean-up continues in Europe after ruinous floods killed approximately 200 people in Germany and Belgium. While in the United States and Canada, more than a 1,000 people died last month in a record-breaking heatwave. Wildfires in the same region are causing haze and air pollution almost 5,000 kilometres away in New York. And of course, here in New Zealand. Mid-Canterbury was smashed last month. Wild cow carcasses had to be scraped up off beaches following last week's floods in Bulla. So how much of the damage and destruction can we directly attribute to climate change? And should scientists in the media be doing more to link climate disasters with human-caused climate change? Sam Dean is NIWA's principal climate scientist and works in the field of attribution, where scientists determine if a weather event is directly influenced by climate change we're
4: welcome to the show, Sam. What is attribution science? Kia ora, Jack. Um, attribution science is where we consider the contribution that climate change has made to something like an extreme weather event, uh, so the West Coast flooding or the East Coast flooding in Canterbury or, say, the... Um, a big heat wave in uh, Canada and the US is the best example. The study came out very recently, saying that the, such an event was virtually impossible without climate change. So that that's that heat wave. Um, you know, the chances of it happening naturally without the warming that we've put into the planet, uh, virtually impossible. We, A- and we, what- we put some precise numbers on it, but yeah, that's great.
0: What is the broad purpose of attribution science? Is it just to win over anyone who might be sceptical about the impacts of climate change?
4: That's true. I think uh, we talk a lot about the distant future with climate change and projections and that people can become disconnected from that. So talking, bringing it back to the now, making it real, um, making it in your back garden and, and talking about how climate change has altered the world we live in already makes it more real for people and that makes it, you know, you're having your policy discussions right now about whether to do this or to do that in response to mitigating or adapting to climate change. So that that's the role it plays for sure.
0: So you and your colleagues have been considering two of the major weather events in New Zealand over the last couple of months. Those floods in Canterbury on the east coast of the South Island and then, of course, the floods last weekend on the west coast of the South Island in Buller, are you at the stage where you can
4: say whether or not those events were caused or influenced by climate change? Yeah, we're working really hard on that um, right now. We can't. We're not ready yet to go with a definitive statement about how much they, they've been affected. They will both have been affected to some degree by climate change. What we can say is that the the west coast flooding, the, the Buller and the um, the Wairoa fl- flooding in Marlborough, um, they because they happened in the winter on the west coast of the South Island you know rain into the mountain mountains and the main divides that that, that sort of event is most the ones that most likely to be influenced by climate change. We've both got more moisture in the air and we've got a greater frequency of those weather events happening because of climate change, because of the way it's affected the circulation and of the atmosphere in New Zealand.
0: And, and, and when you get to the point where you can say how much has been influenced by climate change, is it just the sort of thing where you say this is 20% worse than it would have been?
4: Yeah, so we, we'll often... I, I think you, I heard you on the radio the other day getting exactly right, talking about how it, for the West Coast it might be a doubling in the chances. So while that event could have happened uh, naturally, uh, the, the risk of that happening has doubled um, because of climate change. So it will be about that, about a doubling of, of the risk. So it's become twice as likely if you, in any given year.
0: It's the frequency of events rather than just the strength of a particular event.
4: Yeah, it's both of them. They, mm. When they happen, they, they are more intense, and but they're also more likely for that west coast in the winter. And so they're facing some of the biggest changes for flooding in New Zealand on the west coast of the South Island. The other place that's really exposed is Northland. So they see those changes due to those tropical cyclones, um, which we don't expect to increase in frequency, but those tropical cyclones get more intense mm. when they do come. So that's a real intensity effect that increased... Um, short-duration, heavy downpours in in Northland in the top half of the North Island, that they're they're a significant concern as well. I I know
0: that the the groundswell farmers' protests concerned a lot of different issues, but some of the issues that people were protesting were climate change policies. Did you you see an irony in the groundswell protest being followed immediately by an event that is likely to have been influenced by climate change and smashed farmers?
4: Yeah, I think it's important that we... We make the connection between taking action and, and implementing change to what otherwise is going on around us. You know, we've had a lot of warming. We're having more extreme events. I think this what's going on around the world at the moment is quite scary, and it'll be interesting to see what studies come out of that in terms of the the kind of crazy place we're going. Um, I think farmers, you know, are really adaptable. They they under, they they experience the weather really closely on on the land, but they are going to have to. Um, either lead or face the consequences of regulations and so that, that, I, I encourage them to lead, I encourage them to to set the agenda oh. for how they are going to uh, like reduce emissions um, but it's it's more than just farming, right? It's like we we need to stop burning coal, we need to stop burning oil. I, I think there's a big climate meeting happening in all the governments in late uh, November later this year in the UK and I think the conversation will be about you know, not using coal for power generation. And New Zealand is importing vast amounts of coal at the moment to generate electricity, and we, we have to stop doing that. We have to stop burning coal and we have to stop polluting the atmosphere. or, or We will live with the consequences of that. And and I, I do get scared sometimes, but I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I think, you know, we can come together and, and make a difference and, and, and have a better outcome than the one we're on at the moment.
0: Why do you get scared?
4: Uh... That we're we we're, we're doing a crazy thing the, the rate of change on the planet right now is is way more rapid than anything in human history our existence e- evolution and has not prepared us for this time we cannot trust our instincts we cannot listen to our guts we have to we have to be guided by science and we have to make decisions on that basis about responding to what is really an existential threat in many parts of the planet Maybe not for New Zealand as an existential threat, but we will face. We cannot, We don't live in the world in isolation, and, and we, we, especially um, when it comes to climate change. So that, that action is going. You know, reducing our emissions. I, I'm really um, now is the moment. Now is the chance. Mm-hmm. If we want to stay below two degrees, um, this is where we have to embrace kind of some of the things that the Climate Commission are recommending and actually reduce emissions, not just rely on planting trees. Um, that helps but we have to start cutting emissions and we have to find ways to do that. And that's going to be hard and it's painful and I'm glad we're having really tough conversations Mm. about it.
0: You have considered carefully what our path is leading us to at the moment. Can, Can you describe what New Zealand might be like in 20 or 30 years or the weather events that New Zealand might experience in that time if we are in 2021 experiencing the kind of floods we're experiencing at the moment?
4: Well, that's a great question. I think we'll be experiencing much more severe floods. The sea's going to rise. Let's say 20 years, we're looking at, say, 15 centimetres, regardless of what we do. Um, Could be more with Antarctica melting. Um, That that raises the sea level. It raises the storm surge. If if Buller had happened in 20 years at a high tide, um, I don't suppose Westport would have been... um, a very uh, happy place. Um, mm. You know, we, we got away. We, we well, we escaped relatively lightly because of the timing of the tides. Um, but let's not let's not think this is a problem for the Westport. It's a problem for anywhere in New Zealand. Um, we live on the coast, and those those floods are going to get more severe. We're probably heading towards two degrees, right? Like at the moment, um, in 20 years' time, we might be hitting two degrees.
0: Yeah.
4: Um, Hopefully policies are starting to come into action and, and CO two is starting to be, you know, with that transformation's well underway. But the changes, you know, two degrees above pre-industrial is um quite a significant. That's where we start to see some big effects on ecosystems. I think New Zealand's iconic ecosystems will be starting to struggle to survive and move and fast enough. Um so the, those things we value, the, the the plants and the animals. Um mm. yeah, so then and then temperatures, of course, heat waves. You know, you might be thinking, well, actually, I'll, you know, I'm starting to use my heat pump for air conditioning rather than warming my house in the winter. And there won't be much snow for that skiing, um, unless we, you know, maybe we'll be able to make a bit of snow at some of those higher elevation places. But um, mm. it's a it's a very different place. Yeah, no, it, it'll be a it'll be a challenging um, for all of us.
0: Sam, one of the things that struck me um, from the story we played before is that. No longer is it just developing countries that have poor infrastructure that are being smashed by major weather events. I mean, you saw the flooding in the subway in China, for example, the incredible floods in Germany and Belgium. When we look at those kind of extreme weather events, are there any events of that nature that have absolutely no influence from climate change? Um,
4: So that's a good question um i think all of those events have been influenced by climate change uh yeah. th- th- that so many events are happening around the world at once is probably a pretty good indicator of climate change it's got the fingerprint of climate change on it if you will um th- some things beca- do become less likely because of climate change um severe oh. snowstorms or something um but we're not talking about any of those at the moment um mm. So, not all hazards get worse, but these, the, the flooding, the, the heat waves, um, some of these, temp, you know, I think these temperatures in Canada and the US were scary. And I know people living there, and they, they were scared, they're mm. terrified by, you know, how do you survive in 47 degree temperature without air conditioning, right? Like, yeah. that's really tough and it kills people. And that is the path we are taking at the moment.
0: I noted a piece in Newsroom by Mark Dalda this week that uh, considered some of the news coverage of the floods here in New Zealand and, and a large percentage of the news coverage didn't mention climate change. Do you think we in the media need to do a better job of linking extreme weather events to climate change?
4: Hmm. Uh, I, I know the BBC, I, I was reading the BBC this morning, and they, um, they certainly put a, a, a comment about climate change in every single article. Um, and that's that's possibly helpful. I, I sort of personally find that it gets a little bit detaching, right? Because you're just seeing the same sentence over and over again. You stop reading it. Um, so I, I think having uh, comments like so stories like this, and I th- I think I've been done quite a lot of um, I've seen quite a lot of people in the media talking about these events in the last few weeks. I, I think that's that's good, and I'm 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 the media's doing okay really into promoting um, or discussing supporting the dialogue of, of climate change I think it's important to keep telling the story of some of these hard decisions about things like electric cars, why we need to do that, right? I, I, it would be good to see that discussion alongside those policy decisions mm. those policy conversations, we shouldn't have them in isolation, they go together and we have to be reminded of why we're making some of these tough decisions and why we need to do them and that's, that's the story maybe we're not quite getting to
0: this has been a really interesting conversation, Sam. Dr Sam Dean, tēnā kui. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks. After the break on Q&A, in the battle for geopolitical supremacy, is New Zealand being forced to choose between China and the United States? Kia ora koutou, welcome back to Q&A. New Zealand joined the US, the EU and the UK this week in publicly condemning a Chinese cyber attack in a move many analysts say further positions us alongside liberal democracies in the ongoing battle for geopolitical dominance. So, are we now at the point where countries are being forced to choose once and for all between siding with China or the United States? Tim Marshall is a former BBC journalist and diplomatic editor at Sky News. He's the author of The Power of Geography, which begins by considering the South Pacific implications of China's ascendance.
1: I just think it's inevitable that as the new form of a bipolar world emerges, in many respects, especially on security, countries will be forced to choose.
0: And what will it mean for a country like New Zealand in the South Pacific, geographically much closer to China than the UK, for example?
1: I think it's really difficult for you, because um, you're a democracy, but you look at the map and then you look at trade and you look at, you know, the balance of trade that you have with China, and then you factor in that China is a dictatorship, and there's a tension there. And so you, you, I believe, when the pressure mounts over the coming years, um, will have difficult decisions to make. Uh, because of your geographic location, whereas instinctively, as a as a as a liberal democracy with deep roots, you will want to align yourselves as much as you can with other liberal democracies. I think this is part of what's a very slowly emerging Biden doctrine. But the tension then comes with, well, this huge giant up there will punish you economically. And there's going to be a lot of tension in that. We've seen it already. You know that you didn't sign up to the the recent Five Eyes, the intelligence memoranda, which was going to criticise the treatment of the Uyghurs. You took a softer line, not making a judgement on that. I think it's an example, though. Of...
0: What will be the consequences of New Zealand making a decision?
1: Oh, great. Because if you look at Australia, um, they've, they've clearly made their decision. And mm-hmm. you look at the a third of their wine imports have collapsed, uh, exports, sorry, have collapsed. And that's that, that grabs the headlines because people know that their wine is nearly as good as yours. But, um, of course, that's not the real headline. The real headline is the much bigger industries in, in Australia, which are also suffering. So if you go down that route and you stand up to uh, what is a dictatorship, I think it's worth underlining it over and over again, because that, that's at the core of this argument. Yeah, your 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 trade will, will suffer. The tariffs on your goods will go up. There will be bans on, on certain aspects, uh, Marlborough Wine, for example. Um, also, this is more vague, but I think militarily... Um, you better, you know, well, you already are very much aligned mm. uh, with other democracies, but you're going to have to stay really tight with them. And you're also going to have to show up on occasion uh, when asked to show up. Uh, as I said, I go back to the British sailing mm. their aircraft carrier. You know, it's not like the Americans are saying, help, we've only got 11 aircraft carrier groups, we need yours. This is, you know, huge symbolism. Uh, by the the British, staking their claim to stick with the Americans as we approach this bipolar world. And uh, you're going to be asked to do similar things. And, again, I'm not saying uh, whether you should or not. I just think that these are the the coming choices. Yeah, And,
0: and in being forced to make a choice and in being forced to turn up, as you frame it, does that mean that New Zealand will have to sacrifice at least part of its independent foreign policy?
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, you've always prided yourself on it, haven't you? And, um, you know, you've you've been quite out there on it, and and that is actually quite admirable. But come on, push comes to shove. Um, And I don't always want to bracket you Mm. with the Australians. It's not not fair, but let's face it, in a geographic political sense, there is a bracket there. When the liberal democracies came calling uh, over the past... Uh, more than a century now, New Zealand has stood up with them. There is a price to pay for having something of an American security umbrella above you. Now, again, because of geography, because you are further away and you have between you and China, you have Australia, this is why I believe you can hedge your bets uh, a a little bit more. But when the call comes, I suspect uh, you you, you you will step up to it. Uh, the Australians, as soon as the Empire called, First World War, straight there, Second World War, then of course the Americans came calling, hence Vietnam, hence Afghanistan, that's why they were there. There is this price to pay. Mm. You, you don't have a protective big brother, if you like, um, without occasionally uh, the, the, bill, the bill coming in. I mean, you know, this is hard mm. reality, it is how things work. In the last few years,
0: we have seen China extend its influence and behaviour amongst South Pacific nations. Do you think mm. if countries are increasingly forced to choose, New Zealand might find itself at odds with some of its closest Pacific neighbours?
1: If they go the same way, and this is part of the big 21st century battle, mm. you know, and you are uh, you're not on the periphery of it. You're not banging in the centre, but you're you know you're close to the centre of, of the biggest twenty uh, biggest battle of all of the twenty first century, which is basically the Indo Pacific and the relationship between America on one side and China on the other. Now, China will try to pick off everybody it can. Of course, it would. Why wouldn't it? It wishes to break out from the the, uh, the first island chain, you know, places like Taiwan, Japan, Philippines, and move down with its influence. You'll know they're they're busy bidding for a port in Papua New Guinea. They're busy trying to make sure that they are the biggest economic players uh, in in some of the smaller islands. And um, if if New Zealand makes its decision that it knows eventually it will stick with... um, I'd like to come to something called the D10 in a minute. If it's going to stick with the, the modern democracies... It'll be part of your foreign policy, if you make that choice, that you will also be going to these small islands and trying to make sure that you are mm. trading with them, that you can give them as many benefits as possible. But, of course, being a relatively small nation, that's extremely difficult because you don't have the punching power of of what I would call the second-tier nations, the UK, Australia, Italy, etc.
0: Tim, talk to us about the UK. Will a post-Brexit Britain... Lose influence in global affairs?
1: Um, Don't you hate it when people say yes and no? But yes and no. It it will lose um, some influence, but it will gain some influence. I'm trying to think of examples. I mean, it's going to lose influence in our purchasing power. You know, we we, we can go to a big country like Brazil and India and say, right, here's our terms for the trade deal, and they're going to say, nah. Whereas, of course, if you go as part of the EU, the biggest, richest trading bloc in the world then you have more purchasing power. So we've lost that without any question. But if you're someone like Poland and you're very concerned that many countries in Europe don't truly understand the threat, potential or perceived threat from Russia or the Baltic States from Russia, because I know the Poles have a saying that, you know, in in, in Portugal and Spain, they don't really care about us. Are they going to fight for Poland? NOW, THE BRITISH HAVE THIS uh, MUCH MORE ROBUST VIEW WHEN IT COMES TO uh, RUSSIA. AND THERE IS THIS NATURAL GRAVITATIONAL PULL uh, BETWEEN THEM WHICH IS ALREADY EMERGING. SO YOU GET EXTRA uh, INFLUENCE FROM THAT. ON BALANCE, uh, YEAH, WE'RE Mm. DIMINISHED. Mm. BUT IT'S NOT AS BAD AS A LOT. A LOT OF PEOPLE SAID THE SKY WAS GOING TO FALL. I LOOKED OUT TODAY, STILL THERE. Speaking
0: of gravitational pulls, or lack thereof, one of the interesting geographic spaces you consider in your new book is space itself. In what ways will geopolitical battles be fought in space in the coming years?
1: Well, hopefully primarily. uh, It's just um, a lot of cooperation. But that would be slightly naive. I mean, we have cooperated in space before, but, um, you know, when it came to divvying up Latin America, I didn't see much... Uh, uh, corporation. So I think the best you can hope for is that the the competition will be economic. I mean, there are, uh, there are uh, meteorites, huge meteorites, mm. that have more rare earth materials on them than the entire U.S. economy is worth in a year, you know, trillions of dollars. So there'll be competition to get there. There'll be competition for who has the greatest influence and control in the low earth orbit where all the satellites are, because if you control... Low Earth orbit, you can pretty much see everything else that moves on Earth, and you can prevent other people from seeing it. You can prevent people from coming out refueling in that area, which will happen soon, and therefore getting to the Moon, which will also become an area of competition. So, I, I, I think the best way to understand it is is through history and geography. In geography, geographic terms. Don't think of it as just space. Think of there being uh, mountains of radiation belts that you have to go over and oceans of gravity that you must control, etc. And on the historical level, think of it in geographic terms of choke points where we have always sought to control and influence the Malacca Strait, uh, the Strait of Hormuz, the Suez Canal, and there are similar choke points in space. And so I think it's inevitable we will compete to be the dominant power. And the three big ones are Russia, China, and the US, USA. And everybody else is uh, is going to probably be an afterthought. And, of course, this will play into this, the, the big idea, if you like, of the bipolar world. Um, because if you want access to space, well, choose your side, China or, or America. Um, it doesn't have to be kinetic as the saying goes doesn't have to have to be war but it will be very very um competitive and very tense at times
0: that's tim marshall his new book is the power of geography next how do you bottle up and sell the magic of storytelling
3: i've always written i've written ever since I can remember it. You know, I used to carry a little notebook and my dirty little secret was writing poetry when I was a kid and I never gave a stuff that it wasn't cool or anything else. No, I, well, I don't care.
0: But, like,
3: I didn't actually come to reading until relatively late.
0: Kia ora, Welcome back. Taking a prestigious job with the Department for Internal Affairs might make you sound like a spy. But Ben Brown is an open book the author and poet has been appointed New Zealand's inaugural Te Afirito Reading Ambassador. It's Ben's job to promote reading to children and young people. I visited him at home in Littleton and asked him about the simple magic of stories. On the main drag in Littleton, just above the bakery, is a view of a busy port, a thousand logs. And a thousand stories.
3: When Scott's first voyage to Antarctica arrived here in the early hours of
0: 190,
3: whenever it was, um, he sent his young ensign up to the office to see if there any telegrams from home. That fellow was Ernest Shackleton. The
0: Ernest Shackleton.
3: He would have been, I don't know, 1920 then.
0: That telegraph.
3: That telegraph, I was right there, that door.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, no, I thought I th- ben Brown is a man who loves stories. I'm somewhere
3: else when I read. The more I can get into a, a good read, the, the further and further away everything else becomes. And I'm just kind of there, with my words, building the picture in my head.
0: And isn't that one of life's most magical little pleasures? The immersion, the escape, the page pinched between two fingers, the tension of a paperback spine. How do we
3: remember people close to us? You know, we talk about them, we talk about them as stories. Um, When we think about our own lives and and how we go about things, we tend to think of them as stories. We don't just connect together a whole bunch of events and that was my day. Stories are puzzles and conundrums and enigmas.
0: And it's Ben Brown's mission to try and bottle the enigma. I've been a farmer, I've been a labourer, I've been a
3: driver, I've been a barman, a bouncer, a hustler, I've been an artist, a tutor, a publisher, a gardener. I was a soldier for eight weeks. That didn't work out. Drifting in morphine for days.
0: He what did work out he's was he's writing. I've always
3: written. I've written ever since I can remember. It was when, you know, I used to carry around a little notebook and my dirty little secret was writing poetry when I was a kid and I never gave a stuff that it wasn't cool or anything else. I said, no, I don't care. But like, I didn't actually come to reading until relatively late because I, I grew up in the Mortuweka Valley on a farm by a river. It was a beautiful place. I had heaps to do. And reading just to me seemed to be time-consuming when I could be doing other things. My father, on the other hand, he was a voracious reader. He he always had two or three books on the go, and he was trying to get me to read this particular book. Have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? He ragged on me for days and days and days. Have you read it yet? No. read it? No. And he was walking past my bedroom door, and I was sulking in my room, and he said, Have you read it yet? No. And and he threw it at me. Hardcover volume. Tom Sawyer, bang, smacked me on the head. He said, Read it. So I read it story the opening sequence you know Tom no answer Tom no answer what's going on with that boy Tom no answer and I loved it I loved it because it was about a boy and his mate who lived on a river and bunked off school and avoided work as much as they could and went sailing down the way on rafts. and that was me and my mate in the Waterworker Valley in 1972.
0: Have you read South? Yeah. Fifty years on, Ben Brown has moved from a river to a port just around the corner from a library. I'm guessing you're on a first-name basis. Yep. He's still enchanted by a good yarn.
3: It's not not even just stories, it's words, you know. It's words in a certain assemblage. Um, That's what makes a story as opposed to a shopping list or a recipe or a a bunch of abstract ramblings. Words are fascinating, the the etymology that's involved, the history, the... um, the geography that's covered, especially in the English language, and in Maori, come to that. You know, I mean, Maori, Maori is a, a, a is a living language, so it grows according to its context and its needs and its requirements. Yeah, always makes me laugh. Those buggers. Oh, Maori never had a name for computer before computer. Before we and neither did you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you know. And don't you think the Māori word for computer is a great electric brain? That's great, eh?
3: Māori have an instinctive understanding of the power of a story, you know, so, I mean, I mean pretty much everything that's of meaning in the, in the Māori kind of cosmology comes in the form of a story, you know, your whakapapa, uh, your Pudako, your, your um, yeah, those kinds of things, you know, they're all paki waitara, they're, they're all stories. It's quite interesting to me that in, in, in the 19th century, for a, for a long period there, Māori were more literate than, than the Pakau settlers who were coming here. And then it just sort of got to about the late, late 1800s and then it stopped. Um, they no longer trusted it. If, there, if there's one thing I could do, uh, it would be to say to um, some of those apparently disadvantaged Māori communities if they are turning away or still shying away from literature and illiteracy, just,
0: you know, Get with the a man at the telling of the story. How do you sell the magic of stories? Ben Brown says all he can do is speak to his own experience. An adventure, an escape, a completely different world is only ever a page away. That's Ben Brown. He'll be at the Taumata Pā Rito Summit in Wellington at the National Library from the 2nd until the 4th of August. After the break on Q&A, the government is developing a plan for social insurance. So what might that mean for
5: Kiwis who lose their jobs? Uh, The idea is that you don't want to make it too generous that you don't go looking for a job, but you don't want to make it so ungenerous that you feel that you have to grab the first job along the way either.
0: The finance minister surprised a few people at budget time in May when he revealed the government's developing an unemployment insurance scheme. Canada has had a similar scheme, called Employment Insurance, in place since the 1930s. Now, there's very little detail about the New Zealand programme at the moment, but Q&A understands it's being roughly modelled on the Canadian scheme. I asked economics professor Moshe Lauda how Canada's programme works.
5: So the basic idea is that it is a what we call a pay-as-you-go system. So everybody who's currently working right now in Canada has to contribute about 5% of their income up to a maximum amount, and that money is used to pay for current unemployed people. So it's not like you have an individualized account that's for you just in case things go bad with your job. It's you're paying for current unemployed. And so as people are more unemployed or less unemployed the amount that we contribute might change at the margin but it's effectively about five percent up to a maximum of around um say three thousand dollars
0: right and to be clear who qualifies for ei support
5: so it started off as something very simple that if you're out of a job you qualify, but of course, you know, like with any legislation in any part of the world, they start adding exemptions, exceptions, add-ons. And so it's usually the idea that if you haven't used it within say the last year or so, then you're eligible to be able to use it up to a certain maximum amount of time based on how long you were employed before that, and also based on what your income is, is gonna determine how much you're compensated.
0: Okay, can you unpack that a little bit more for us? To, To be clear, is EI a supplementary welfare system? Are there other support systems that are available to support people who are out of work?
5: Yeah, so there are plenty of other programs out there that you can qualify for. So employment insurance is one of them. So if you had a job, and then you lost it, and it's for, let's say, a legitimate reason, right, not that you decided to quit, and you just want to live on the dole for the rest of your life. But if you lost your job because of an economic downturn, they're downsizing or something like that, then you basically have to fill out a form these days, it's all online. Uh, And you would have to provide something from your employer saying that you legitimately lost your job. At that point, after a period of about six weeks, then you start qualifying. Now, you might qualify for other programs as well. And what happens then is the amount that you receive is means tested. So if you're receiving lots of money from some other source, then the amount that you qualify for for employment insurance would be different than if you didn't qualify for any other things. If you have a family with kids, as opposed to being single, older, younger all of those things are going to kind of determine the amount that you qualify for, but it's essentially a short waiting period, and if you haven't used it uh, prior, let's say about 12 to 18 months before.
0: OK, so, so you made it clear that individuals can't ring-fence their contributions. So if I were to lose my job, I don't only qualify for the money that I have contributed to the scheme. However, do higher earners qualify for more money under employment insurance?
5: Yeah, so you qualify usually for some percentage of your income, but even there it's up to a limit, right? So you could imagine that if somebody's in the corporate suite and they're earning tens of millions of dollars a year and they lose their job, they're not going to start qualifying for millions of dollars in EI support. That would be outrageous uh, for the taxpayer to have to, to foot that bill. So Uh, Once you reach a certain threshold, then it starts leveling off that this is the maximum that you qualify for. But at low levels of income, uh, it's usually not 100% of your income. Uh, The idea is that you don't want to make it too generous, that you don't go looking for a job, but you don't want to make it so ungenerous. Uh, that you feel that you have to grab the first job along the way either. And so every politician will constantly tweak with that as a new party comes in. This is something that they want to review depending on whether they're left or right of centre. And
0: and, and what sort of range do you see? So I I can imagine that, um, you know, under under some political parties, perhaps you qualify for 80% of your previous wage for a certain period and then under other political parties, perhaps it's slightly less?
5: That's exactly it. So it's about 60 to 80 percent, assuming that you are uh, a typical medium income earner. So in Canada the median income is around $50,000. I think in New Zealand it's roughly about the same if you take GDP divided by the number of New Zealanders and given that our dollars are roughly in line with each other, then your viewers would be able to appreciate that if you're earning around say 40 to 50,000 New Zealand dollars a year, you would qualify for about 60 to 80% of that depending on the political party up to say a maximum of anywhere from 16 weeks to six months, again, depending on the generosity of the, the party involved.
0: OK, up to, up to six months. But But in order to qualify for this, you have to contribute 5% of your wage. There will be some people who say, that's a very high cost.
5: It is a high cost, Um, and to add to it that when I'm talking about that we, the employee, are contributing 5% in Canada, the employer is also required to contribute 5%, and so it drives a a rather large wedge beyond just income taxes and all of the other deductions that we experience on our paycheck, effectively you're adding a 10% wage uh, wedge between what the employer is effectively giving you and what you're taking home. And so, yeah, it's a very heavy contribution, but because it maxes out that you don't have to contribute that money beyond, say, about $50,000 a year, uh, then the fact is that you require a a rather hefty sort of tax because high-income earners, if they're earning $100,000 a year, then their deductions stop around the end of June. Uh, because they've reached that $50,000 limit that no more 5% deductions take place.
0: Right. Okay, I understand. How has the system worked for COVID-19?
5: So, they were a lot more generous with uh, EI. They extended the amount of benefits and they introduced a brand-new program, which in Canada we've called CERB. Uh, This was over top of that, where we were basically handing anybody who had... Uh, let's say, uh, breath in their body, uh, about 1000 to $2,000. And depending on their, their means, they could qualify for that over top of EI. The discussion right now in Canada is, as we're coming hopefully to what's the tail end of COVID, Uh, what do we do with CERB? Do we roll it into EI? Do we make EI more generous, less generous? uh, Or do we eliminate EI altogether and retain this CERB program, which was a very generous sort of EI system?
0: It's interesting. Here in New Zealand, the government hasn't released much detail on the program at the moment. Indeed, they are consulting as they try and design New Zealand's program. But they introduced it off the back of COVID-19, when a lot of New Zealanders who felt that they were very secure in their jobs all of a sudden were forced to and with the insecurity that the pandemic has brought to our economies. And and really, employment insurance is not the kind of system that is actually designed for a large-scale shock such as COVID-19, is it? It's a system that actually works better in normal times.
5: You're exactly right. And the thing is that when you introduce these systems in the face of an economic shock, so COVID, of course, is a huge one. For New Zealand, of course, uh, an economic slowdown in China would have uh, devastating effects as well, right? You don't want to introduce policy at the height of a crisis or on the back end of a crisis, because usually what you end up doing is you introduce something that's overly generous. And so while it seems reasonable in the time, especially when everybody's afraid, a few years down the line when you realize that because you're using this pay-as-you-go system, what's going to happen is you're not going to have the money to keep paying for those generous benefits, right? And that's when things are going to get ugly, where once you start saying that I'm cutting benefits to unemployed people, uh, this becomes highly politicized. And so the best thing to do is, you know, a a slow, gradual introduction where Mm -hmm. it starts off not particularly generous, not particularly long, uh, merely to kind of trial balloon and see how people get used to it. And then you can increase the generosity as the economy recovers. And you can see what a full business cycle is going to look like in a post-pandemic. World.
0: And Moshe, would you have any other advice for New Zealand policymakers who are designing the system here?
5: You know, I, I think what I would want to see from a data standpoint, if I can be kind of academic, um, is I'd like to see. Um, how many people in New Zealand are unemployed, but I'd also like to see things like the duration of unemployment. So if you tell me that one out of 20 New Zealanders are unemployed, that's great. But if it's the same one out of 20 people that are consistently unemployed, employment insurance is not gonna solve that problem, right? The problem is that somehow they're missing skills to get them back into the the labor force. But if it's a rotating band of one out of 20 people that this month it's this group, this month it's this group, then the system could work really well. you need to be able to see those details beyond just the idea that unemployment spiked during COVID. Who were those people? And uh, of course, are they North Islanders, South Islanders? Are they in the cities? Are they out in the rural parts of, of the nation? And so those are the types of things that You need to realize that if it's going to be an effective insurance scheme, it really does need to cover all New Zealanders and all the risks that they face, not just particular segments. Otherwise, it's going to become very resented by people who have stable jobs, stable incomes, and feel that they're just subsidizing people who don't seem to want to figure out how the labor market works mutu,
0: it's Q&A for this week. Nga Hikia a Thanks for watching and for your contributions. Marae is up next. The Olympics are at midday. Hey tē wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.